Good morning. Thank God for the resurrection. Appreciate all of the songs that were lifted up this morning uh, that were concerning the resurrection, uh, which is what we're going to unpack together today. Now, last week, I was a bit more, uh, told a lot of jokes before I started, Uh, but uh, if you have looked at the text, you see that we've got 25 verses to cover. So I want to go ahead and and get right into this uh, hour and a half sermon (laughs) that y'all are going to have to listen to. Uh, But if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we're going to start at verse 57, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 28, verse number 15. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to go all the way through chapter 28, verse number 15. All right, audio guys in the back, I'm speaking very softly right now. uh, And I sound very loud to myself, so, you know, I get a little excited when I preach the word of God. Uh, So uh, give yourself some, some wiggle room back there. This is the word of God, so please listen carefully. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests And the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28, verse number one. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled 
and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will find him. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You keep steadfast love for thousands. You forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And God, since that's your character, we put our hope and our trust and our faith in you. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, speak, O Lord. Amen. So this passage details one of the most important events of the Christian faith, the resurrection. The Christian faith is completely dependent upon the truth of the resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 that Christians are most to be pitied if the resurrection is not true. But my brothers and sisters... It is true. Appreciate those amens. Hymns and anthems of praise, ones that we have sang today, have been written to help the church exult in the wonder of the resurrection. We have a Christian holiday that is centered on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in faithful churches throughout the world, the resurrection is celebrated on a weekly and a daily basis. The truth of the resurrection vivifies our faith and calls you and I to action. My brothers and my sisters, there is no good news without the resurrection. Where would we be if the Lord Jesus didn't get out of the grave. I shudder 
to think, I shudder to imagine a world without a resurrected Savior. So as we work through these verses today, I want us to take every moment that we can to thank God that Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. Our passage starts with the introduction of Joseph of Arimathea in verse number 57 of chapter 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. This is the first time that Joseph is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. He is described as a rich man. The Greek word for rich is oftentimes used negatively in the New Testament, but it serves a different purpose here. Joseph had significant financial means. Let me make it plain. Joseph didn't just have money. He had real money. And for my, my, my millennials and my Gen Z in the house, he was bawling. <laughs> but Joseph used his significant financial resources for the glory of God. Joseph is described as a rich man, but he is also described as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke's gospel describes Joseph of Arimathea as a good and righteous man. Joseph was a follower of Jesus, which makes him a rich man who entered the kingdom of God. In the words of Matthew 19, 24, Joseph was a camel who squeezed through the eye of a needle. Joseph of Arimathea serves as a witness to the power of God, and his inclusion in the kingdom of God proves that with God, all things are possible. Joseph's significant wealth also would have afforded him things that other people simply couldn't afford. Now, my brothers and sisters, keep that fact in mind. It's going to be important later. Luke's gospel tells us that Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin council. So as we move into verse number 58, we now know that Joseph was a rich Disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was also a good and righteous man, who is a member of the Sanhedrin Council, and also had direct access to Pontius Pilate. Now, there are already so many significant points that are converging in these first two verses, because we can already see how God is at work Behind the scenes, supernaturally ordaining everything that is taking place. And we've only gotten two verses finished so far. In verse 58, Joseph goes before Pilate to to retrieve Jesus' corpse. Uh, The ESV translation tells us that Pilate ordered the body to be given to him. Now, this can also be understood as Pilate commanding Jesus' corpse to be yielded to Joseph of Arimathea. In other words, we should understand that uh, there was no intent to ever give up Jesus' corpse because they likely had no intention to hand over Jesus' body to anyone. This is significant because of the cruelty of Roman crucifixion 
In ancient Rome, crucified criminals would be left on their crosses to rot until vultures and insects and other beasts started to feast on the decaying flesh. And the rotten and mangled corpses of crucified criminals would have likely also been buried in common graves along with the rotten and mangled corpses of other criminals. These corpses of these criminals would have been rotten beyond all recognition. And so Jesus' corpse would have likely suffered a similar fate if Joseph of Arimathea didn't go and ask Pilate to turn over the body to him. Y'all are going to get this eventually. This is a significant point that we need to keep in mind because although Jesus is innocent, he was crucified as a criminal. So his body would have suffered the same fate as most criminals if Joseph doesn't go and retrieve Jesus's body. Now, a couple minutes ago, I told you to keep in mind that Joseph's wealth would have helped him to afford things that other people couldn't afford. One of those things was Joseph's own personal tomb. I'm in verses 59 and 60 of chapter 27. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Ancient Jewish religious culture was passionate about burying the dead. It was actually against Jewish law to leave people unburied. Do you see the tension between Jewish law and Roman crucifixion? But it wasn't typical for most people to own the type of burial chamber that is described here. This was the type of thing that was reserved for the rich. My brothers and sisters, this was the Mercedes-Benz of grave sites. This was the BMW of burial burial chambers. So save for being buried as a king or a prominent ruler, there was no better burial arrangement that could be made. So Joseph puts Jesus in his own new tomb. Jesus was now buried in a tomb of his own, all alone, not in a common grave, where there could be no mistaking where he was buried and where there could be no mistaking that it was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth who was buried there. Now, those facts may not do anything for you all, but I can assure you that they demonstrate that God is at work here. So, my brothers and sisters, keep in mind, if you, as we continue through these verses, keep in mind all of the facts that are coming together here. They'll be important in the end. Verse 61 tells us uh, that two women named Mary accompanied uh, Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. I'm in verse number 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. Our brothers and sisters, God uses the most unconventional characters sometimes for his glory. God doesn't always choose Saul's to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes he chooses little old forgotten David. And sometimes he uses Moses who had a speech impediment. 
because he wants to make it clear that he is the one who is accomplishing his purposes and plans. I've heard it this way. God doesn't call the qualified. Rather, he qualifies those whom he calls. So in our passage, God uses a rich Jewish leader, and then he uses two women. And history shows us that during this period of time, the testimony of women would have been undervalued. So using the testimony of women wouldn't actually look good during this period. But God, the Lord Jesus, was not concerned with the optics. He was concerned with his glory. So he sovereignly ordained that these two faithful sisters would be present in this moment for his glory and for his purposes. They are the perfect candidates for God's miraculous power to be shown. Now, my brothers and sisters, these two faithful sisters will return to the story again a little bit later. But you, my brothers and sisters, just like these two faithful women, I want you to know that you are the perfect candidates for God's miraculous power to be shown. God can take your little bit of what you've got and do a whole lot with it. And if you don't believe me, I've got Bible. If Jesus can take two fish and five loaves of bread and feed 5,000, God can take whatever little bit of what he's given you to use for his glory. You missed an opportunity to say amen right there. In verses 62 through 66, the scene shifts from Jesus' tomb to a gathering of the council where we find the Jewish leaders scheming and plotting. That's what they do. If you, if you read uh, the, the gospel of Matthew, the, the Jewish leaders, that's what they do. They scheme and they, and they plot and they do evil things. The chief priests and the Pharisees in uh, verses 62 through 66, they, they want to be done with this Jesus problem, this Jesus issue. They want to be done with it once and for all. So they gather with Pilate to make a, a, a request. In verse 63, they recall the words of the Lord Jesus. And they say, And sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I will rise. They refer to our Lord Jesus as a fraud. But Matthew is using some irony here, I believe, because who, who really is the fraud? Back in Matthew chapter 26, the religious leaders brought Jesus up on false, trumped-up charges about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. But verse 63 in our passage shows that at least some of them clearly understood that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. He was talking about a bodily, physical resurrection. So who's the real fraud here? Matthew proves who the real fraud was in our passage. So in verse 64, the, religi the religious leaders tell Pilate to secure Jesus' tomb until after the third day to prevent the theft of Jesus' corpse. Again, remember that. Pilate grants their request, and verse 66 tells us that they went and made this, the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. My brothers and sisters, Jesus' dead body was now in a tomb all alone, and the tomb was sealed 
a stone, a heavy stone, had been rolled in front of the entrance, and it was heavily guarded by war-proven Roman soldiers. Now, for all of their scheming and all of their, uh, all of their plotting, the religious leaders didn't realize that they were setting themselves up for failure. They were so blind that they were trying to stop something supernatural from happening with natural means. And my brothers and sisters, I, want, I just want to let you know something. You cannot stop God's plan. Many have tried, but they all failed. Remember what Yahweh did to Pharaoh. Remember how he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Many have tried to thwart the plan of God, but they all failed every single time. So as Matthew's narrative moves into chapter 28, the scene changes again. It is now the day after the Sabbath. I'm in chapter 28, verse number one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. As I mentioned before, our faithful sisters have returned to the story and they are headed to the tomb where Jesus was laid to rest, likely to complete the burial rites. As they are making their way to the tomb, my brothers and my sisters, listen to what happens. I'm in verse number two. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I'm going to try to keep my composure with this. The angel of the Lord causes an earthquake that rolls the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. And then the angel of the Lord sits on top of it. The angel of the Lord sitting on the, the stone is the ultimate display of the power of God. Let me make it plain to you. This is like conquering a land and planting the flag in the middle of the capital city. This is like conquering a kingdom and sitting on the king's throne. I'll make it even more plain to you. This is like somebody beating you in poker at your own house. Because what was meant to contain the king of kings and the Lord of lords is now just a seat for one of his angels. So let's look at verses 3 through 6. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men but the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here for he is risen as he said come see the place where he lay my brothers and my sisters notice something there is no mention of a scuffle between the guards and the angels Matthew writes the account as if the angel doesn't even interact with the guards at all. He doesn't even care that they're there. The guards were so subdued from fear to the point that they trembled and became incapacitated like dead men. And there's a play on words in the Greek here because the Greek word for earthquake in verse number two 
is the same Greek word that is used to describe in verse 4 the way that the guards trembled in fear. So these guards, they weren't just scared. They were scared, scared. They were shaking in their boots. And then the guards were left to tremble in fear while our two faithful sisters were comforted by the angel and told to fear not. And then the angel redirects their fear to something that will bring them unspeakable joy. He points their fear to the empty tomb. My God. The stone is rolled away and there is no corpse inside and the angel tells them the tomb is empty because Jesus is alive again. Now, there are some who read this passage and and say that that Jesus had already supernaturally exited the tomb before the stone had been away. If that's the way that you interpret this passage, that's cool. I'm I'm with that. I'm not sure that that's what uh, Matthew was trying to to communicate here, uh, but but the intuition is spot on, and, and I'll tell you why. Matthew is showing us that a stone and a seal and some Roman guards were never going to stop the Lord Jesus from coming out of the grave. So the stone wasn't rolled away simply for Jesus to walk out. The stone is rolled away primarily so that we could look in. The stone was rolled away so that now we can look in and forever behold an empty tomb. Jesus has risen and the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, Jesus is vindicated as Messiah and Lord. Because the tomb is empty, we can rejoice together as brothers and sisters. Because the tomb is empty, we can rejoice that the resurrection is true. And because the tomb is empty, we can hold fast to every single promise that God has made for us in Christ. Now, in verses 7 through 10, these faithful sisters are given probably one of the greatest privileges in all of the Christian faith. I'm in verses 7 through 10. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See? I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, They will see me. These faithful women are the first to hear the good news. They were the first to see the empty tomb. And they will be the first people to carry the good news. What joy, what excitement they must have felt as they were being commissioned to go share the good news with their brothers. And Matthew, he he does his best to describe the emotion of the moment. Uh, For these women in verse 8 by saying they ran from the tomb with both fear and great joy. But what was good news in verse number 7 and verse number 8 became the best news ever in verse number 9. Because as these sisters were running 
to tell their brothers about the empty tomb, they saw and were met by the resurrected Lord along the way. So now these two faithful sisters have the privilege of being the first to see the resurrected Lord in the flesh. And their response was what it should have been. It was worship. And then something remarkable happens. Jesus allows himself to be worshiped. Now, this is something that's reserved for God alone. And Jesus accepts their worship because my brothers and sisters, just in case you didn't get the memo, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's talking about our Lord Jesus. The same was in the beginning with God. The Lord Jesus is worthy of our worship because Jesus is God. And so our last verses switch yet to another plot by the chief priests. They're doing what it is they do. I'm in verses 11 through 15. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him, sold him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day. Now, these verses, my brothers and sisters, show us the reality that some people just aren't going to believe the gospel no matter what happens. I'm reminded of the story of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. After lifting up his eyes in hell, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers about the torment of hell. Abraham tells the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced should someone raise from the dead. So in our passage, after hearing the report of the guard, the chief priest's response wasn't to repent and believe that Jesus was who he said he is. Their response was to come up with another scheme to protect their reputation. But Matthew, the master of irony, he puts on a clinic with the use of irony for us here. Because the very narrative that the religious leaders schemed to try to prevent in chapter 27 in verses 62 through 66 is the same exact story they're using now to try to protect their reputation. They try to prevent the theft of Jesus's body, but now they're lying and they're saying that Jesus's body was stolen. It shows that these were evil men and they would stoop to any level to protect their power and their reputation. They were corrupt and they proved that they were of their father, the devil, just like Jesus said they were in John 8. Also, think about this. And this grinds my gears. Like this, 
This overcooks my grits. Where did the council get the money to pay the soldiers? Where did the council, the elders, and the chief priests get the money first, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, first to bribe Judas and then to bribe these guards? Think about it. They likely took the money that was intended for the temple to support their lawless schemes. This would be like your pastor stealing your tithes and your offering money to fund a criminal enterprise. These religious leaders, they were evil men, and they would stop at nothing to maintain their status. So instead of repenting and coming to faith in Christ, they doubled down and ensured the judgment that Jesus prophesied in chapter 24 would surely happen. But even though they created a rumor that spread amongst the Jews, their explanation of what happened to Jesus' corpse was riddled with unexplainable questions. Like, there was an earthquake and you slept through it? In the words of Vody Balkum, that, that dog don't hunt. <laughs> But even though they spread a rumor, it could not stop the spread of the truth of the gospel. Now, as I bring the sermon to an end, I want to go and kind of tie up some of those loose ends that I left intentionally in the beginning and in the body of the sermon. I told you throughout the sermon to keep a few things in mind in particular, but just in case you forgot, I want to remind you of those things. If at any point after the tomb was found empty, the Jewish religious leaders could have produced a body, the Christian faith would have been dead. But let me show you a few ways that God was sovereignly at work ordaining the events surrounding the resurrection. Jesus was convicted and executed as a criminal. The Roman state would have left Jesus' corpse on the cross to rot and decay and to be devoured by bird and beast. They would have also thrown his unrecognizably mangled corpse into a common grave with other executed criminals. But God foreordained in Jewish law and culture that it was unlawful for Jewish citizens to be left unburied. Then God also foreordained that a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea would have a tomb where Jesus' body would be laid. This was also prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 9, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. God ordained that Jesus would be taken from the cross before his body decayed and became unrecognizable. God also foreordained Joseph to have a new tomb so that Jesus' body would be unmistakably placed in a specific location. Because if Jesus' decayed, unrecognizable corpse was thrown in a common grave, the Roman officials and the Jewish religious leaders could have pulled any old random body out of any old random common grave and said, see here, 
This is the body of Jesus. And our text proves that they were willing to stoop to any level to protect their reputation. But since Jesus was in a tomb all by himself and the tomb was empty, they couldn't pull any old random corpse out of the ground and pretend that it was our Lord Jesus. But they couldn't produce a body, my brothers and sisters, because we all know that Jesus got up and walked out of the grave. My brothers and sisters, he is alive. And I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that if God can raise Jesus from the grave, there is nothing that he can't do. If Jesus can be resurrected from death, he can make the impossible possible. My dad, who's a Baptist preacher, he would say it this way, God can do anything except fail. Now, some people find the miracles in the Bible hard to believe. But if the resurrection is true, then Jonah in the belly of the well is easy. If the resurrection is true, then walking across the sea on dry land is easy. Because uh, think about it. If somebody who you knew was dead walked into this room right now alive... It would blow your mind. So if resurrection is possible through Jesus Christ, then all of the other miracles in the Bible are light work. So my brothers and sisters, if the resurrection is true, and it is, what will you do with it? What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? Will you harden your heart like the Jewish religious leaders? Or will you worship like our faithful sisters that we saw in this passage? My brothers and sisters, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, I beg of you, put your faith in the Lord Jesus, the resurrected king and master of the universe. Because the tomb is now empty and the Lord Jesus is on his throne. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good. You are so good that you allow us to have that same spirit within us that raised Jesus from the dead. So we thank you that we can rejoice in the resurrection. We can rejoice that it's true. And if you're resurrection is true then there's nothing that is too hard for God is anything too hard for the Lord no so in light of that we put our hope we put our faith and our trust in you whatever someone may be dealing with today Lord allow them to know through the power of your spirit that you are the God of all comfort Be the God that you promised you would be to us in Jeremiah 31. Help us through your spirit to be your people. We thank you for your promises and we stand on them as true because of the truth of the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.